Well, thank you so much for your kindness. It is, uh, continues to be a pleasure to be your pastor. And uh, I have, and me and my family have, have both uh, just really felt welcomed by the church. We love being here. We love you. We, we seek to be more faithful in the ministry. And, and uh, so it's just a real pleasure. This is a dream come true for me. I've said that before. So I, I am living the dream, so to speak. I just have to get the Harley in the truck yet. And then I, then I have it all. All right, well, uh, part of the sweet thing about coming to Jerusalem Church is that the building was, was paid off. That was nice. So I appreciate the building, but there's something that I appreciate even more, and that is you. I'm thankful for you. Jerusalem Church is not a building, and it's not pews, and it's not stained glass. Jerusalem Church is a group of people committed to Jesus Christ and each other and their community now, we all know Jerusalem Church is not a perfect church um, because the, the perfect church just simply doesn't exist because perfect people don't exist except Jesus. We're all broken, but we're beautiful, but we're beautiful to God. Pastor and author Mark Dever wrote, quote, a healthy church is not a church that's perfect and without sin. It has not figured everything out. Rather, it's a church that continually strives to take God's side in the battle against the ungodly desires and deceits of the world, our flesh, and the devil. It's a church that continually seeks to conform itself to God's word. End of quote. Friends, Jerusalem church is far from perfect. We are not as healthy as we could be or what we will be. But this is a good church. This is an exciting church because we are working together to conform to God's word. We want to bring all ministry in line with God's word. We're transforming into what God wants us to be. It's an exciting time for Jerusalem church. It really is because there are opportunities to grow and advance and they're all around us. We simply need to be faithful to God and great things will happen through us. We need to trust God, Jerusalem Church. We've covered a lot of ground. You can review the 12 uh, previous characteristics of a healthy church in your notes or you can access those online. But let's tackle the last four characteristics of a healthy church. And if we really commit to these 16 areas, we'll become a healthy church. I think a really dynamic church we need to keep building and investing in the right things and God will make us healthy. He'll satisfy us with Himself and He'll use us in His mission. Listen, there is a great price to pay for health. But isn't church health worth the price? Isn't the sweat and sacrifice worth it when people come to know Christ and grow in Christ and the kingdom expands and God gets glory? So now's not the time to relax. We cannot relax. We have to bear down. We have to work hard. Now is the time to work hard together to build something great. Last four traits. A healthy church, number 13, protects holiness through church discipline. Protects holiness through church discipline. A healthy church is a holy church. They strongly believe holiness is worth protecting and worth preserving. 
An unhealthy church abandons discipline. Discipline is hard, right? So a ch- uh, uh, an unhealthy church just abandons discipline because they fail to see the importance of holiness in the church. The book of Leviticus, I think all of us can probably agree, it takes some work to understand. But it serves us in this way. It reveals to us the holiness of God. Different times in Leviticus, you'll hear God say something to this effect. Be holy for I am holy to be holy means to be sacred or set apart from impurity or sin god sets a people apart to display his holiness in them so he naturally desires them to reflect his holiness in leviticus 20 verse 26 god told israel this i have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine God distinguishes a people, makes them holy through His Son, and takes them, don't miss this, to be their treasured possession, to be His treasured possession. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So a healthy church reveres the holiness of God and connects it with their own personal holiness. And because holiness is so integral and so valuable to their faith, they are vigilant to safeguard it through discipline. Sin kills and distorts the reflection of God's holiness in God's people. Imagine churches that claim to believe the gospel while they ignore and allow sin to ravage their members without ever confronting sin. They are not healthy churches. They are dangerous churches. They insult the holiness of God and mock the gospel by their unresponsiveness to sin. Every healthy church values and administers formal church discipline because it more deeply values the holiness of God and the church and desires to proactively lead people to combat sin in their lives. Now, what is church discipline exactly? What am am I talking about? The Greek word for discipline means training or instruction or correction. Discipline is given to influence the heart and, and thus reform the behavior and redirect the behavior. Church discipline is, is basically whatever the church does to help its members strive for holiness and to strive to kill sin in their life. So this includes preaching and teaching, encouraging, rebuking, accountability, worship, and spiritual oversight from the leading elders. But church discipline also uh, refers to a formal process of confronting sin in unrepentant members for the purpose of restoration. That's a hard thing to do, but a healthy church is ready to formally discipline to confront sin as to restore the person caught in sin. Not only is it confronting sin, but discipline proposes a real danger and imminence of exclusion from membership and all of its benefits, including the Lord's Supper, if that person continues in unrepentant sin. Healthy churches want people to live healthy lives, holy lives, where they revere God, therefore, They stand ready to enforce formal discipline 
when necessary to safeguard people from the devastation that sin brings. They take sin seriously. Here's what it looks like practically. Turn to Matthew 18. You might be there already. We're going to review this little section. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. This is, this is church discipline according to Jesus. This is what it looks like. Jesus said this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice the last step of formal church discipline is uh, only there if the person refuses to repent. So they're not hearing it. They're not getting it. They refuse to turn. And so the last step is formal church discipline to graciously help them to turn from sin. The church cuts them off from fellowship because they want their sin more than Jesus and fellowship with others. And because of the seriousness of that sin, the church must take a formal step to cut them off from the fellowship. This is how Jesus wants a local church to protect unity and holiness. Now this is really whacked out. In Corinth, a church member was sleeping with his stepmom. Obviously a problem. Paul called the church arrogant because they ignored this man's sin. And Paul actually told them in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 to deliver this man to Satan. That's how he put it. For the purpose of the destruction of his flesh. Now that probably meant to administer church discipline so that the man would experience the pain of his sin. Sin brings certain pain. And sometimes when you feel the brunt of that pain, it can cause you to repent because you don't like what the fruit that it brings. The purpose of that was the man's salvation, is what Paul's saying. Being tough, showing that tough love of discipline was for the man's benefit to bring him into proper fellowship once again. It was his salvation at stake. We can't just let him keep going as he's going. We have to restore him to the fellowship. That was the purpose. Church discipline has salvation in view. Paul then said in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. That's interesting. One note that I read explained verse 7 this way. When publicly known sin in the church is not subjected to church discipline, it will silently spread its destructive consequences through the whole fellowship. That's 100% true. That will happen. You overlook sin long enough and it just justifies everybody else's sin and sin just takes over the congregation and holiness is out the door. So formal discipline is helpful, get this, to everyone. It's important to everyone. A few verses later, Paul said not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that's those inside the church, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, and then he lists some other sins, not even to eat with that person. 
And Paul ends with these really strong words, purge the evil person from among you. That's not just purge the evil, purge the evil person from among you. Because they're claiming that they're, they know Christ, they're claiming the name of Christ, they're walking like an unbeliever, and they are poisonous inside the church. So discipline, we seek to restore that person, and when they are not restored and they refuse to repent, they are cut off from the church fellowship. This is necessary for us to, to protect and preserve the holiness of the church. If a church member is living in unrepentant sin, that's the important thing to recognize, unrepentant, I will continue with this lifestyle of sin, is what they're saying. A healthy church, after making an attempt to restore them, should remove them from membership. John MacArthur said this, the purpose of the ostracism is not to punish, but to awaken to awaken them to the truth in love. Healthy churches use formal church discipline to awaken unrepentant sinners to the seriousness of their own sin in order to lead them back to Christ. The old hymn lyric was, wrote, was right. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You, is that true for you? I'm prone. We're all prone to wander that is true of us. So then church discipline is loving if it seeks to protect people from wandering from the Christ that they love. It restrains and it threatens our propensity to leave Christ. Church discipline is actually God's grace for us. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. And God often uses formal church discipline to show His love to His people. Now, church discipline, honestly, who finds it pleasant? It's not pleasant for anybody. It's not pleasant for the person. It's not pleasant for the people around them that care about them. It's not pleasant for the leaders who oftentimes are the one dispensing the church discipline. It hurts. Discipline is tough love, but it has the power to produce something that makes the immediate pain of discipline worth it. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yes, it does. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It produces righteousness. It produces holiness if we can be trained by that discipline. Now, that is a very hopeful verse if you, if you think about it. Listen to how John MacArthur put it, quote, The goal of church discipline is not to throw people out of the church or to feed the self-righteous pride of those who administer the discipline. It is not to embarrass people or to exercise authority and power in some unbiblical manner. The purpose is to restore a sinning believer to holiness and bring him back into a pure relationship with the assembly. As you consider church discipline, ask yourself these two questions. Do you want to be holy as God is holy? I mean, do you really want to be holy? To live a holy life? Is that important to you? And number two, do you want people to love you by helping you confront the sin in your life? And I find that these two questions are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. If you really want to be holy, then you will also really want people to keep you accountable unto that holiness. 
to call out sin in your life. When a church gets serious about holiness, they will at the same time get serious about church discipline, about helping one another stay on that narrow path. The one that very few people take because the way to destruction is wide and everybody seems to be taking that path. But what about the narrow path? I want to take that path and I need people to say, Jonathan, you got to take that path. We're going to help you stay on that path. Effective church discipline helps preserve unity as well. A healthy church, number 14, enjoys great unity. Unity. A healthy church enjoys great unity because they are united to Jesus Christ. United in a common faith. Any unity outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ is a precarious or vulnerable unity. Unity found in Christ is invincible. It cannot be stopped. It transcends language, it transcends race and culture and time and special interests and even opposing views on certain things. Now, as we all know, Christians have strong disagreements about things. You know, you start bringing up all kinds of theological topics, political topics, sports topics, people just, they come out because we have strong disagreements. And sometimes we fight with each other about those disagreements. And that dishonors the name of Jesus, but our unity in the person and work of Jesus far outweighs our differences. We are united in Christ. Together, we have all the promises of God guaranteed to us through our one Lord Jesus Christ that we love. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. We are one United we stand in Christ, in Christ. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, he prayed for his disciples, but he also prayed, interestingly enough, for you and me, for Christians to come of all ages, uh, throughout the ages. Listen to verse 20. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, and that was referring to his disciples that were in front of him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's us because we believe through the apostolic witness of the gospel. And then verse 21, that they may all be one. Think about that. We are one with Peter, James, and John. We are one with the apostles. We are one through, with Christians throughout the ages. We're one with Clement of Rome, Tertullian, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and let's not forget John Piper. We are unified in one. Believers throughout the ages from Adam until now are one in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the adhesive of our cohesiveness. Jesus is our common denominator In that same high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, I in them, that's union with Christ, and you, the Father in me, the Son, that they may become perfectly one. The presence of Christ and the Father is our unity, is our oneness. Consider the human body. All the systems, skeletal, muscular, nervous, respiratory, cardiovascular, digestive, excretory, endocrine, immune, integumentary, and reproductive, diverse systems united working together to sustain life. And Paul uses the human body to describe the unity experienced in the church. Listen to this. Romans 12, 4 and 5. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We're different, but we're united as one. Whenever someone repents of their sins and trusts in Christ alone, they are united not only to Jesus Christ, they are united to their brothers and sisters now in Christ. Every Christian, in fact, throughout history, they become an essential part of the whole. Unity is often misunderstood in churches. We label it weird things. Um, unity is not avoiding confrontation by ignoring sin and doctrinal differences. Let's just not talk about them. I don't want to go there because then we'll get into an argument. That's not, that's not unity. Unity is not compromising truth in order to circumvent conflict. I'm just going to let that go. Yes, it is gross heresy being taught in our church, but we're just going to let it go because we don't want to ruffle any feathers. That's not unity. Unity is oneness. Unity is agreement. Every healthy church is united in Christ, the unadulterated gospel, and the mission of God. Of course, a, a healthy church doesn't agree on everything. That's, that's true. But they will unequivocally agree on the essentials of the Christian faith. Yet a healthy church will strive to have unity of mind in the other areas that are not essential. So we should always be sharpening each other. Always talking about biblical doctrine and theology and to get it right because we want to believe what is actually true. And so where we disagree, we say, I love you so much, but you're just wrong. You know? No, you don't want to do it like that. But, but we keep talking about these things. Unity is agreement. It's unity of mind, as Paul, or Peter rather, uh, wrote about. Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to agree with, with one another, to allow no divisions, and to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The unity of our, of our thinking and the unity of our judgment is important to God. And you know, it, it seems counterintuitive to say this, but unity, it, it, you have to fight for unity. You have to fight to protect and preserve unity. And it's something really worth fighting for. Paul said in Ephesians 4.3 that we should be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eagerness shows effort. Eagerness shows intensity. We want unity, and so we're going to fight for it. Unity takes a strong commitment to each other. It takes a strong commitment to love and to self-discipline and sometimes keeping our mouths closed and sometimes opening our mouths. And it's just this weird mix to protect unity. It's worth it. And unity is a team effort. Imagine a rowing team. I don't know if you know anything about rowing teams, but imagine that each rower is like, I'm not rowing with everybody else. I'm doing my own thing. And they start rowing their, their own way. And one guy's sitting there like, I'm not rowing at all. I'm eating a Twinkie that I brought along. And he's sitting there. And then another guy, my hamstring hurts. I don't think I feel like rowing today. And you know what the coxswain is? Is the one that steers the ship, basically, orders out commands. So the coxswain, he's playing Candy Crush on his iPhone. I'm just tired of this rowing and these guys always not doing what I'm doing. That boat is in trouble. It won't be straight. It won't be powerful. It won't be effective. The way that you get the boat headed in the right direction with power and efficiency and effect is to get everyone rowing at the same pace and the same... Unity is what works in rowing. Unity and power 
There's power in unity. Jesus talked about the effect of unity. He said in John 17, 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one and listen to the effect of unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Wow. That's considerable what unity does. Unity in Christ, inside the church, is a way to educate the world that the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son and that God loves the church like He loves His Son Jesus because the church is united to His Son Jesus. This is phenomenal. A contentious and fractured church is bad press for Jesus and the love of God. A unified church, on the other hand, powerfully conveys John 3.16. That's what it's all about. Here are three things, very practical things that I hope help you, uh, that you can do to promote unity in your church, in our church. Number one, kill sin in your life. Kill sin in your life. Don't tolerate it. Kill it. What you might consider your private sins are not private. They influence the unity of the church. James 4, 1 through 3 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Your passions. Unresolved sin in your life promotes a combative spirit in the church. It's very serious. Sinful passions and desires cause discord. And discord obstructs a church's effectiveness for Christ. So we need to all kill sin in our lives. Number two, let certain offenses go. Let certain offenses roll off and let them go. Now there are times, absolutely times, when we need to say something when we've been offended. Sometimes we're too cowardly to do that because it's hard to tell someone when you've been offended. But there are good times to do that. We must. To confront sin so it's taken care of and not ignored. But oftentimes... It's very helpful to overlook the offense against you. To let it roll. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So what if we just started covering more, not covering up sin that needs to be dealt with, that's not what I'm talking about, but just those things that are like, oh, eh. We let them roll in the name of love. Some things we confront, some things are best Left go. Number three, keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. The best way to promote and protect unity is to love, love, love. Keep pouring it out. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That works in the family, by the way. We can work through anything if we love Christ and we love each other. What can stop that love that God gives that he gives to us and pours into our heart. I, I don't know of anything that can stop that. We can bowl through anything because God will help us in that respect. When we hate, we lose unity because hatred stirs up strife. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love. We have to love to, to keep the unity and to keep the peace. 
We need more selflessness. We, we need more sacrificial love to have unity in the church. Work on these three things and you will absolutely be promoting unity at Jerusalem Church. Simple things. Kill sin in your life, let some offenses go, and keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. I've said that healthy churches enjoy great unity. Folks, unity is so enjoyable. It's great to experience unity. Uh, Jerusalem Church has experienced conflict through the years and unity through the years. And I think you would all agree that in your experience, you prefer the unity. That's better. It's enjoyable. It's fun. We can actually get something accomplished when we're all on the same same page. David nailed it in Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And he's right. It's good. It's pleasant. It's enjoyable. We should strive for unity. Excuse me. A healthy church also, number 15, nurtures and supports the family. Nurtures and supports the family. Healthy churches love singles. They love married couples, they love widows, they love orphans, they love divorced people, and they love families. They love people. You don't have to be a certain way to be loved by the church. Every Christian belongs because every Christian has been adopted into a family. We are a family. Um, The Father has been good to us. You don't have to be married, you don't have to have children to find a place here and to belong. But... Healthy churches are advocates of the family. Healthy churches love and support marriage and family. You cannot read the Bible without seeing God's plan for families. It's just everywhere, all throughout redemptive history. And some may say, ah, but family came after the fall, pastor. When were children born? Which might say something about children. I'm just saying. Just kidding. They're great. Adam and Eve had children in sin, right? That is true. But God's command to be fruitful and multiply came when? Before the fall. So God's plan for family existed very much on the other side of sin before the fall. Be fruitful and multiply. And yet, Adam and Eve ate that fruit and destroyed what the family was meant to be. Family was God's design from the very beginning. So for a church to be healthy, it must honor God's design that was there from the very beginning. We must honor and love family. Do you remember the promise that God made Abram? God told Abram in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the covenant that God was making with his people. Abraham represented a people of faith at that moment, and God was entering into covenant with that people of faith that stretched through the ages. And through him, the families of faith all across the world are blessed. God also made that promise to Isaac and to Jacob. Marriage and children have been an integral part of the church since the very beginning of time. The church began with family. Once again, listen to how clear this is presented in Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, one of my favorite passages. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And then we see it in Psalm 78, 4 4 through 7 as well. It says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. 
the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. God uses the family, the family, to prolong and propagate His gospel. The family is a huge and massive and effective plan of evangelism for the next generation. The family has always been the foundation of society. As the family crumbles, societies crumble. How how long will it take us in America to learn that? This is not hard. Just look at history. Healthy families make healthy churches, which make healthy societies. Why does Satan attack the family? Because he's cunning and strategic. That's why. Satan doesn't want healthy families because he understands how powerful a healthy family is in perpetuating and propagating the gospel. More often than not, Satan uh, Satan strives to take out husbands and fathers first. And there's a reason for that, and it's biblical. You'll hear me talk a lot about men and their spiritual leadership role and responsibility in their marriages and families. And that's not because women are less important. If that's what you're getting from me, I don't think you understand me yet. They're extremely important. They were equally important. It's quite the opposite. But the Bible teaches that men are the spiritual leaders of their homes and that they bear the responsibility to love and teach and nurture and grow their family. It should be no surprise that even secular research confirms the powerful role of men in families. And societies, look around at the destructive effects of fatherless homes. See how disengaged and checked out dads? Yeah, they're there physically, but they're not there. They're just checked out of their families. Watch the impact that that has on the wives and the kids in those families. There's so much pain in our culture because dads fail to do what God wants them to do. Think about these statistics. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers are from fatherless homes. We could go on and on. There's tons more statistics out there. My friends, the church has a very simple strategy for reforming all of society, and it works. Of course, trans people, uh, transform people with the gospel. Of course, that's the plan. But more specifically, transform men with the gospel. And disciple those men to selflessly love and serve and provide for their wives and disciple them to disciple their children and disciple them to prioritize the spiritual health of their wives and their families above everything else in their lives. And you will see culture change. Things will get done. The more children we have in godly and happy homes with a strong and involved dad and mom, the more hope we have for future reform in society. The Bible talks a lot about marriage, talks a lot about parenting, talks about families, because the family is the building block of society. Healthy societies are built with healthy families. 
healthy churches are built with healthy families. And the family is an incredible tool to reach people for Jesus Christ. Family is even a powerful tool to reach people without families. Churches who do not invest considerable time in building and growing the family are not healthy churches. Investing in families is one of the most important ministries we can do as a church. To invest in families, to see healthy families because it's generational work. It's not just about now, it's about years to come. Now, in the coming years, I will say that Jerusalem Church will devote itself even more. This is a commitment of mine to strengthening families here. We must do it. It's not only biblical, it's desperately needed in our culture, and it's an opportunity to lead a lot of families to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. Family is a way to do that. We need to do this. Last mark. It's a really short one, but it's so important. Please don't miss it because the last one gets tacked on at the end. Got to get this one. A healthy church focuses on becoming what God wants it to be, not on what it once was. They focus on becoming what God wants them to be, not on what they once were. Healthy churches may be fond of the past, but they're focused on the future. Why did Paul say, be transformed by the renewal of your mind if the past is more important than the future? Christ is taking us somewhere Jesus Christ died, that's past, and that's glorious, and we don't ever want to forget that, because the scripture tells us to remember, so we got to keep looking back, we can't forget. And he died so that we might be transformed into what God wants us to be, so that we may become what God wants us to be, so that we may live eternally, which is future. Healthy churches look ahead. We're headed toward a great kingdom. We're building a great kingdom. We have to keep looking ahead, not look over our shoulders and dwell on the past. Now, we here at Jerusalem love our church's history, but we can't relive it. We can't go back in time. It's gone. Only the future awaits us, so we must think about that. Think about the future. Where are we going? Where are we headed? Our history will not make us effective for Christ today. We have to make us effective for Christ today. The history hopefully fuels in that. Folks, we got to be fanatical, just absolutely out of our minds fanatical about what God desires us to be. Jesus is our leader, and so we need to get behind him and, and follow him wherever he takes us. And that's joyful, that's exciting, that's incredible. Psalm 23, you probably know it well. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus leads us for the glory of his name, but what paths of righteousness is he leading us into? Where are we headed? What would you like God to do through Jerusalem Church in the next 10 years? Have you thought about that? Where are we going? What happens in the next 50 years? What happens in the next 290 years? Are we working unto that? What dream do you have to magnify the name of Jesus? Who knows? This next year at Jerusalem Church could be our most fruitful year ever in the history of the church. Who knows what God will do? Does that excite you? Do you want to get on board with that? 
Where's God taking us? Think about the next generation. Think outside of yourself to the little kids that are so precious in our, in our group. What, what about them? Do we want a healthy church that would be sustained and for them? That they can become the leaders? We should see young people, train them up to be leaders and to get their hands dirty in ministry and to get involved because they are the church. They're not the future of the church. They are the church and we must pay attention to those precious ones. What are we doing now that will help them thrive as a healthy church in the future? During the last few weeks, we've covered a lot of material. I understand that 16 things, it's like I don't even remember them. You know, I can't tell you all 16. I'd have to look at my notes. That's pathetic. But each one is extremely important not to forget. This series becomes for us something to strive for, something to remember and to strive for. Do we really want to become a healthy church? And the true answer to that question, what will test that? is our future and what we do to become a healthy church. So we can't just say it. We actually have to start moving to become a healthy church. Ask yourself this question. What can I do to help Jerusalem become a healthy church? What can I own? How can I help and contribute? That's really, if you sum up the whole thing, just ask yourself that question. How can I help us be more healthy? One of the best things you can do is work on your own spiritual health. Would you do that? Would you become healthy? Would you grow for the sake of Jesus? And if we all commit to that, I think we'll be a healthy church. And I think God will take care of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're so good to us. We love you. Uh, we, we come to you and plead that you help us to be healthy. Um, God, I pray that you will uh, use your Holy Spirit in us uh, to grow us, to mature us, to develop us. And God, may, uh, may Jerusalem Church be a brighter light. It's already a light, but help us to be a brighter light in our community, in our society, because they need light. They need truth. So God, you are with us. Give us unity and uh, help us to be very faithful together for the cause of your gospel and the, the great fame of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.